Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, Nachalois, the laws of inheritance or Nachalois, Peter Shishi, chapter 6. Just to point out again, we learned earlier, repeatedly, during one's lifetime, one may give anyone anything of theirs. The laws of inheritance talk about passing on one's estate through the inheritance process. That is regulated by the Torah. Aleph, one, ein Adam Yachal Ahedish. A person cannot pass on an inheritance to someone who is not fit to inherit him. So a person cannot leave in his will. He says, I'm giving everything to my first cousin. I'm cutting out my sons. And who cares about my firstborn? You can't do that. That violates Torah law. Now, what he can do is gift it to his cousin. But gifting is not inheritance. He can't uproot the right of inheritance from someone who has that right by Torah. Even though this statement we just made goes against the basic principle we've been learning and learning and learning. And that is any condition holds with money. Financially, a person can do what he wants to. Here also, why can't I do what I want to? Shazem Momen, who this is money. The reason is because the Torah regulates inheritance of the Shinema, the Pashas Necholes, because it says in the portion of Nachlo, the of the Israel, it shall be to the children of Israel, for a statute of, the, of judgment. A statute means it doesn't have to make sense. This law, does not change, you can't set conditions. Whether the command to break this Torah system of inheritance was given when the person was yet healthy and it was written and instructions were clear, or he was dying and instructions were oral. We learned earlier that the Torah. And the rabbinic law allows for much more liberal oral law when a person is dying, so he's calm. Orally or in writing, you can't twist Torah law. Therefore, the therefore, if one says, so and so, my firstborn son, will not get double that the Torah gave him. Or he says, so and so, will not inherit with the rest of his brothers, cutting out one of his sons. He said nothing. Again, a person can do whatever he wants to in his lifetime. He can gift stuff, no problem, but this is inheritance. Each plainly, Yeroshani, so and so will inherit my estate. The Makam Shiyashle Bas, in the case where he has a daughter and no sons, by Torah law, the daughter, Bas bin Kombein, Yeroshis, inherits the estate. BT, Yeroshani, or he says, my daughter will inherit my estate. The Makam Shiyashle Ben, in the case where he has a son, where the Torah says the daughter does not inherit in the place of a son, he goes up against Torah law. Lay Omar Kloni said nothing. Or anything similar. But when is he allowed to make conditions? And this is an issue that's actually discussed in great detail in Tractate Baba Basra, in the Mishnah, and defined by Gemara. If he had many heirs, again, for example, Bonim Rabim, he had a lot of sons. He had 14 sons. Or he had no sons and no daughters, and therefore his brothers are his heirs. He had many brothers. Or he had no sons and only daughters. A bonus, only daughters. The Omar, and he said, as he was dying, he says, I know I have a lot of brothers, and I know they are my heirs, but so and so my brother, I love him. He shall inherit me because I have all my other brothers. All my other brothers don't care about me. This brother, I love him. That's okay. Because even though it does change Torah law, but still he's not uprooting Torah law. He's still giving it to a brother. Or, again, he has no sons. He has a lot of daughters. He picks the daughter who was good to him. This daughter shall inherit my estate. All the other daughters, they only called me on Father's Day. Once they bought me a tie. The bar of Kayon of his words hold because he's picking a daughter, and that's what the Torah mandates. Whether it was oral, it was in writing. But if he said, and we learned this earlier, the guy has 12 sons, and he says, only Moshe, my son, will be my heir. I'm cutting out the other 11. He doesn't really say that. He said, Moshe, my son, will be my heir. If he said it orally, then we honor his words because he's taking a son amongst his sons, commentary say, provided he's not cutting out the firstborn. But if he did it in writing, all my possessions go to Moshe, my son, and he has many other sons. It doesn't mean he's cutting out the other sons. It means he's making this Moshe as the guy in charge of his will, what we call an executor. And therefore, what's the idea of an executor when you have a bunch of siblings and one of them is chosen as an executor? That person gets a lot of love and respect. The Moshe be honored, as we explained, because that person has all the power. So and so my son will inherit half my estate to Sharbon and the rest of my son, Hachati. Or Hachati, the other half, the water of Kayonim, it's okay. We honor his words. Again, I believe it's because it's within the framework of Torah who says sons inherit. So he found one son and gave him the, the lion's share. Ablim Omar, but if he began to mess with Torah, what do we mean messing with Torah? He excluded the firstborn from his Torah right of double portion. Hapcher, if he said the firstborn Yidash will inherit Kaposh, like the non-firstborn. Aisha Omar, he said, Layer Shpishnaim and will not get double. Layamar Klum, here he said nothing. Shenema, as it says, specifically in the Torah, in Kisaysay, Layuchal Levaker as Ben Ha'uba, he may not choose. He may not select. He may not favor. The word Levaker comes from the word Chor. 
the son of his beloved wife, Alpnei over Ben Asnua, the son of his despised wife, Apcher, who is the firstborn, Kies Apcher Ben Asnua Yaakir, the Torah mandates that he must recognize his firstborn, even though he doesn't like his mother. So again, there is this leeway, as long as we don't directly uproot Torah law. But if the person bequeathing his estate was healthy, he can't add or diminish, not the firstborn, and not any of the other heirs, because all of these leniencies only apply to as he's on his deathbed, not in advance when he's writing his will. Now comes the most important law of this whole business. When does this apply to Shalom and Yerusha? If he's talking about the language of inheritance, estate, ah, well, if he uses another language, if he uses the word, gift, I am gifting my next-door neighbor, his words hold, his words are absolutely correct, because a person can give anything to anyone he wants to during his lifetime. If somebody's distributing his possessions, I'll pee by his direction, Lebonah to his children, when he's a dying man, where our sages gave him liberal ability to do so. If he gave one child more and one child less, and he made the firstborn equal, he says, my son, number three, gets 60%. The other kids split it all, including the firstborn. I am gifting this to them. His words are fine. Why? Because although he's dying, he's still alive. And he used the language gifting, not bequesting. But if you use the language of bequesting and inheritance, it's meaningless. Now, if you use mixed language, if somewhere in the beginning or the middle of the end, you use the language gift. Even though he also mentioned inheritance beginning and end, his words hold. Why? Because he used the word gift. Gift always goes. Let this and this field be given to this and this son. And he shall inherit it. But he used the word given first. He said, let him inherit it. It should be given to him. And inherit it. He used the word given in the middle. Or use the mixture of both. He should inherit it and it shall be given to him. Given his gift. Being that we have the language, the verbiage of gift. Even though he also mentioned inheritance in the beginning and the end, his words hold. three fields for three heirs. He said, Yirash, so and so should inherit. Field number one. And the and so and so should be gifted. So the plainest field number two. Yirash, and so and so should inherit. So the plainest field number three. We have the word gifted here. Konu they all acquire. Even though not the same son, which he used the language of inheritance, they use the language of gifted. But who provided that? It's all one sentence. Did he not pause? And leave a space of air in between one statement and the other. In halacha, we learned about this many times before. This is called toch kedei dibur. A person amends his language immediately. But if he waited and paused and let time go by, then the language of gift must be involved in every one of these expressions. Now, we learned earlier, what is this measure of pause space that is or that isn't? So we learned that if somebody says, Sholim olecha rabbi umori, peace to you, greetings to you, my teacher and my master. Or others say, Sholim olecha rabbi, greetings to you, my master. You either add the word teacher or you don't, so it's a few seconds. That's a pause. But if it's within that realm where the guy cannot say, Shalom Alecha Rabbi Omeri, then it's not considered a pause. So that's the measure, the, the litmus test. Zion Kate said, So what's the deal? What's the scenario? The verbiage of gift was in the middle. You might should say, Plainly, plainly, you should saw the plainness. So and so will inherit this field. The plainness. Oh, I'm sorry, plainness or plainness in this field. Shinasati Loham, or Shinasati Loham, which I gave them. Bimatona as a gift. You have the word gift here. The Yerushim, they should inherit it. The language of gift was early in the statement. You might should say, Tinosin, let it be given. That's gifting. So the plainness. So and so field, the plain you plain to so and so, the Yerushim, let them inherit it. If you wanted the language of gift at the end, you might should say, Yerush, plain you plain to so and so, should inherit so the plainness, plain to so and so field. Shinasati Loham, which I gave them. Bimatona as a gift. Now we learned earlier in the laws of husbands and wives, and we touched upon it in other laws as well, in the laws of marriage and so on. By rabbinic law, a husband inherits his wife's estate. It's a rabbinic law because he supported her so generously, and so on and so forth. The fact that the husband is the, inher- is the heir of the wife, even though it's a rabbinic ordinance, as are most marriage obligations. The Torah obligations of husband to wife are very general. And they are that he should give her food, clothing, and intimacy. Other than that, there isn't a lot of detail. Rabbinic law has a whole list of stuff. In exchange, rabbinic law gives certain things from the wife to the husband, including... The husband is able to be the heir of the wife's estate. Also, though it is rabbinic law, our sages strengthened that law and made it as powerful as the Torah law. They not tonight, therefore, preventing conditions from affecting that obligation. So a wife cannot say to a husband on Monday morning, listen, I'm not feeling so well. By the way, I don't think you should be my heir. I want to give it to my best friend, Sylvia, with whom I go to Starbucks every morning. 
That's a condition that goes against Torah law, even though he agrees. So the only time this condition can kick in is if this was agreed to before the marriage was consummate, consummated, which means in the state of betrothal. We learned many times, once upon a time, the marriages were affected in two stages. Stage one is betrothal, where they're legally married, but they don't live together. Stage two is the marriage usually came six months or a year afterwards. During that state of, of, of betrothal, they can negotiate. She says, listen, I don't want you to be my ear. She says, we explain the laws of marriage. But once the marriage is happening, it's too late. What about a non-Jew? How does Torah law affect non-Jews, even when they are under the domain of Jewish law? An idolater or a non-Jew, by Torah law, one non-Jew, the father, does bequeath his inheritance to his son. The son does inherit the father. Because the Torah law gives basic father and son rights to the non-Jewish world as well. Abel, but, Sha'ar Yerushayim, the rest of the heirs, going past son from father, we just let it go as their culture is. We're talking about the father is a non-Jew and the son is a non-Jew. What about a convert? And as we learned extensively, and we still will learn, that a convert, meaning a non-Jew who converts according to Jewish law and becomes a Jew, this person becomes a new entity and therefore severs himself from his previous existence. So the Hagar, a convert, he no longer is the heir of his Gentile father's estate. Except that our sages were concerned that if the convert's Gentile father left $10 billion and the convert cannot inherit it, he'll say, never mind, I'm not a convert anymore. I'd rather have $10 billion. So our rabbi said, let him inherit it. We don't want him going back. And rabbinic law says, yes, it's fine. Our rabbi's ordained law for him. That he should inherit his father's estate to show you as it was before he converted. Why? Because we're concerned that he's going to rebel against God and say, to heck with all this. $10 million is a lot of money. It appears to me that conditions work in this kind of inheritance. People can make conditions. Because if the non-Jew wants to, he can do a condition with the heir because he doesn't have to keep the condition. By the same token, a non-Jew does not inherit his father's estate if his father converted and became a Jew because the father becomes a new entity. And here comes a problem which we learned about extensively earlier. A convert son does not inherit the estate of his convert father because they're both new entities. Not by Torah law, but not by rabbinic law. Now we come into advice. Anybody who gives his property to others and leaves his heirs behind, even though the heirs are not acting properly, our sages did not enjoy hearing about that, which means it's not a good idea for a person to cut his heirs out and have somebody else inherit anything, everything. However, if it was done by gift, and the others, they acquire everything that was given to them. You can't take it away because a deal is a deal. It's just not a good thing. In fact, it is an attribute of piety. Our sages have advised that a pious man should not even testify, should not even be a witness. In a will, which removes the estate from the heir, even from a son, who doesn't act as he should, to his other brother, to his brother who is a wise man. And does act properly. What if a Jew converts and leaves the faith, which is technically impossible because a Jew is a Jew is a Jew, but nevertheless, he's called Yisrael Mumer, a Jew who left his faith. He continues to be the heir of his Jewish relatives because a Jew's Judaism can never be revoked. However, if the local court elected to penalize him, to take away his money and not allow him to inherit because he's doing terrible things and he's making a balagan, desecrating God's name, in order not to encourage this kind of activity, they have the right, if he has Jewish children, then there. Father, who is an apostate and walked out of his religion, still gives his estate to his children. And this is the custom that we always followed in the West. And when the Rambam talks about the West, he talks about Las Vegas and San Francisco. No. He means Spain, Morocco, and Western Europe. Our sages commanded the closing paragraph of this chapter. It's not a good idea for a father to show favoritism one son over the other during his lifetime. I feel a bit more it, even in minor things. Why? What do you mean why? Look at what happened with the Joseph story. One nice uh, coat. One uh, coat of technicolor colors. In order that it not cause jealousy and hatred, competition, like the story with Joseph and his brothers. Therefore, person's lifetime, you should say, I love you all equally. You're all wonderful. Get out of my face. But, you know, I love you. You're my son. End of chapter 6. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Nachalois or Nacholais, inheritance, Pedic Shvi, chapter 7. Moving right along. Ein Hayershin Nechalin. 
The heirs do not inherit until they can bring clear proof, definite proof, that the person whose estate they are inheriting is really dead. Because a presumption of, yeah, he probably died, let us go in and take his estate, doesn't work. You know, somebody could be away for a few months. His relatives could say he died, and when the guy gets back, they spent it all. So halacha is very precise as to when it allows a relative to go down into his estate, and when it doesn't. The answer is they need clear proof. This goes back to the principle of hamotzi, mechavero, olavarayim. When you bring, when you try and take somebody else's money, the burden of proof is upon you. The heirs must bring proof, must bring proof that he died. Abel, however, they are basing their action on rumors. They already died. A or another scenario, where non-Jews came. A non-Jew could be the most wonderful person in the world, but he's not kosher to testify in a Jewish court of law. So a non-Jew came. In conversation, in innocent conversation, in cafe, coffee conversation, he said, this and this person died. What do we mean when we say innocent conversation? He wasn't intending to testify, but why should he lie? And here's an interesting law. Even though when the non-Jew innocently says, listen, this fellow died, we figure, why should he lie? He'll be in trouble. Sooner or later, the news will come out. So we allow his widow to marry. Wow, that's pretty serious. Because if her husband shows up, we got trouble. Why? Because we assume it's correct. And if she is permitted to remarry, she's certainly permitted to collect her ksuba from her husband's estate. Still, that's not enough proof. The heirs cannot inherit the estate based upon the conversation of this non-Jewish fellow who is speaking innocently. Why is that? Because our sages were more liberal and more lenient in allowing a woman to remarry than they were in matters of finances. A woman comes along and says, the woman herself says, my husband died. Even though she's not going to lie, she is trusted, she can remarry, she can collect her ksuba, but still, that doesn't mean that the heirs can enter the estate by her words. That's not enough. Because when it comes to taking money out of somebody's estate, and again, we're thinking, what's the big deal? You take $40 out of somebody's estate. Let's say it's $40 million. All of a sudden, it's a big deal. If she said, my husband died, and she had no children, and he didn't leave any children, so the Leverite marriage comes about. In that case, the brother who married her, he gets the estate of the dead man, he takes the place of his brother, so he married her in a Leverite marriage, he gets the estate. So here we see a situation where marriage law is more liberal than estate law. For marriage law, we allow her to remarry. For estate law, we don't. Now we see the opposite. Interesting. If somebody supposedly drowned, in a body of water that is endless. This is a halachic expression. What do we mean endless body of water? No body of water is endless. Endless visually, like an ocean. An ocean doesn't look like it ever ends. Or a large lake, or a large river. That's called Mayim She'en himself. Along come witnesses, two kosher witnesses, and they saw him go under, and they never seen him after that. You know, when somebody goes under in a small body of water, who knows? They could come out the other side, and you'll never know. But here there is no other side. The other side is Japan. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just a long way. And anything about him, any memory of him is gone. Even though we say, to begin with, it's better for the wife not to remarry. How is he going to look if he shows up? He was saved by a submarine. But this situation is powerful enough for the heirs to get the estate, because he's dead. So why isn't she allowed to remarry? Because she's allowed to remarry even when there's weak witnesses, but there has to be some kind of witness. Nobody saw him die. I believe that's the angle here. So also witnesses came, and they saw, they didn't see him die, but what they did see is, they saw him, and they saw him fall into a pit of lions, or Nemedim, he translates here as tigers or leopards, and that could ruin your whole day. Or they saw him hanging. And they saw birds picking his skull. Or he had a sword pierced through him in war. Or he was killed, but he killed upon him, and they didn't recognize his face, because his face was just totally messed up. But he saw, they saw clear, recognizable signs in his body. He had particular identifying marks. And they recognized him. In all these scenarios are similar. If nothing was heard from him after that, he was lost to memory, he lost to the world. In that case, we assume he's dead. The heirs can go down to his estate with this type of testimony, even though it's not enough to cause his wife to remarry because there was no clear testimony who saw him die. They saw him dead, but maybe it was somebody else. I think that's the logic. I say, 
the reason they were more strict when it comes to allowing his widow to remarry his alleged widow, Elder Pinesir Kardis, because that would entail a transgression which would be punished by the cutting off of the soul, very simple, very serious adultery. Avaling in moment when it comes to financial matters, which is a much lighter situation, much more lenient. As long as witnesses testify that they saw something which brings about an assumption of death, they saw him fall into a lion's den. They saw him fall into a tiger's pit. They saw him hanging, at least it looked like him. And they saw the above. He was never heard from again. What if later there was a confirmed rumor that he died? We'll even let them inherit. That this is standard practice, followed every day in courts. We don't hear any dispute. And again, the world then was a world where there was so much more death of young people than there is now, Baruch Hashem. Okay. Just to point out something which I heard repeatedly, a very adorable scenario, a very adorable anecdote from my father of blessed memory with regard to what we just learned, that the face was not recognizable, but certain identifying marks on the body were. So they, my father would tell a story. There was a man who disappeared, and then the court called the wife in and said, listen, we found the corpse, and we suspect it's your husband's, but we're looking for identifying marks. Can you tell me anything unique about your husband that another person wouldn't necessarily have so we can identify him? She said, yes, I can. My husband stuttered. <laughs> so they, this fellow was listening, and this fellow says, lady, you're crazy. Your husband stuttered? That's what you're telling the court? <laughs> so the court looks at this guy who's embarrassing this woman, and they say, mister, can you tell me why you're laughing? He says, she thinks that her husband was the only one who stuttered. That's a cute story that my dad would tell. Okay. If you don't get it, see me later after class. Dalit, moving right along. Someone was taken into captivity, a kidnapped victim. Man was kidnapped. And the CW, the conventional wisdom, the rumors already died. And his heirs went into his estate, down into his estate. And divided it between them. But really, we don't know for sure that he died. What we do know is he probably died. Because most kidnapped victims, if you don't hear from them, they're dead. We don't forcibly remove the heirs because we don't really know differently. Or a similar scenario. This guy runs away because someone's after him. And he's in danger of life and death. There's a hit out for him. So he disappears. And they never hear from him again. And his heirs go down into his estate. We don't forcibly remove the heirs. If somebody takes a trip. And the rumor was that he died. But we don't really know that he died. All we know is he took a trip. He went on a cruise. And we never heard from him again. But nothing happened to him. And his heirs went down to his estate. And divided it. Here we remove the estate from the heirs. They must, as we learned earlier in Halacha 1, bring proof that he died. Because you don't assume that because somebody went on a trip and wasn't hurt from again that he died. He wasn't kidnapped. He's not running away from a killer. Maybe he relocated in Cleveland. That's like the fellow who was trying to find himself and found himself in Cleveland. Hey, a kidnapped person who someone who's running for his life because someone's out to get him. He's escaping a killer. Here, we assume that they're in trouble. So the courts have to supervise their estates. What's the process? And again, the, the issue here is we've learned many times about court-appointed uh, trustees and, and supervisors and, and, and managers and so on and so forth. The problem is that you don't have people a dime a dozen who are hanging out around outside the court to manage people's estates. This is a, this is a big job. When it comes to orphans, it's a, it's a mitzvah. But just like this, every day, who's going to do it? It's a big burden for the courts. That's the issue. So he says here, Kate what do we do? Call on a in you, of God, and be them, and I'll be best. Anything movable should be stored with a trustworthy person under the supervision of the courts. Why? Because movable objects don't take a lot of work. You take all the gold and all the silver and all the precious utensils and diamonds and jewelry and he puts them in a safe place. He doesn't have to feed them. He doesn't have to go visit them. And then, when it comes to the real estate, we bring down into the real estate craving relatives, future heirs. Why do we want relatives who are future heirs? Because they care about the property and they'll treat it properly with kid gloves. They'll maximize care. They should work the properties. Well, they should and occupy themselves with them. Actually, until they can ascertain that he died. Actually, until he comes back. If he died, he's dead. They stay there. They're part of the heirs. If he comes back, then they deal. They get a cut of what they did, and all good. 
Or if Shayabai, what happens when he comes back? Who? Ashabi the kidnapped guy, we assume was dead. Or Abayayachah, the fellow who ran for his life, what happens when he returns? Shamin Eloakrevim, Shahudu, Masha Osu, Masha Ochu. The court does an appraisal of their work and what they consumed. We treat them like a sharecropper locally, as is the custom of that particular place. So therefore, it's a win win situation. If the guy never shows up, then they will have treated the property well because it becomes theirs. If the guy does show up, they get paid like a sharecropper and everybody lives happily ever after. Now the question is, why should the court not appoint Apatrupas a proper guardian like we do with orphans? Forever. Appoint the guardian for the movable objects instead of storing it with a trustworthy person. Or the real estate. Until the owners return. Until we have clear, definite, definitive proof that he died. The answer is because to appoint a court-appointed guardian is a big deal. The courts are not obligated to Hamid to appoint. Apitrupas a guardian. For adults. They are mature, intelligent adults. And when it comes to orphans, says Rashi and Baba Mitzia, people are eager to do a good deed, to be a guardian for orphans' properties. But just for adults, I mean, who, who wants to bother? Not like the pay is good. And whereas to be a guardian, a, a, to be a trustworthy monitor over movable objects is something else that's not that big a deal. What if the kidnapped man was taken captive, or the man who was running from his, for his life ran away and was never heard from again? We're not sure if he's alive or dead. We're going to assume he's dead, but maybe he's alive. And he left a full field of grain to harvest, or grapes to harvest, or dates, or olives. And here we see the words are different words for each of these species. They all mean harvest. The courts go down into his possessions and appoint a guardian. And harvest all of these species as required. And the guardian sells the produce, depositing the money with any other movable objects in court. So that is the movable stuff. It's now safe in court or a court appointed safekeeping. Now that we've harvested, we've done the immediate need, we then take the relative who's going to inherit anyway, bring him into the estate. And he cares for the estate, as mentioned before. If the guy doesn't come back, he's part of the heirs. The guy does come back, he's treated like a sharecropper. So why don't we let him come in right away? Why does the court have to appoint a guardian to harvest? The answer is because the harvest is something that's immediately ready. If he goes down immediately, he'll just harvest this, which is ready to go. He'll consume them. Try and get it back after it's consumed. Therefore, we appoint the court-appointed guardian to harvest them, depositing the profits in the court. Then the relative goes down to work like a sharecropper. The Huadin, the same law is when it comes to stuff that doesn't take a lot of work, easy to manage stuff. Bachatseres in courtyards, ufundukois, and in inns like a Motel 6. Bachanuyes and stores. What do you need to do? Collect rent. That's all you need to do. Like a manager goes once a month to collect rent. These are rentals. They don't take a lot of work. They don't take a lot of effort. So we go in, appoint the guardian to collect the rent, and the rent is stored, placed under court supervision. It's not normal for a person to appoint sharecroppers who take a cut. Usually you have a manager or something. Not that big a deal. In this case, we do not allow the heir to go down into the above list of courtyards and stores and so on and so forth. Because we're concerned. What's going to happen if the guy goes? The first of every month and he collects $10,000 worth of rent for his relative that may never come back. What's going to happen is he's going to spend the $10,000. I would. He's going to take it to Las Vegas and donate it to Chabad of Las Vegas. What do you do? The court has to appoint a court-appointed guardian. Not so much a guardian, but a supervisor, a manager. The best the bottom line is he collects the rent, deposits, in, deposits this rent in the account for this estate held in the court until one of two things happen. Either proof, clear proof is brought that he died, or until the guy returns and takes his property. We never cause a relative to descend to anything else other than fields, gardens, vineyards. These are situations where we bring down a relative as a sharecropper. Because otherwise, he just brings some stranger down they're going to be left fallow and desolate but somebody doesn't care. He doesn't care. So it's best to bring in a relative who says, hey, I am working my own future property. What if somebody left knowledgeably, willingly, knowingly? He, he left. Nobody kidnapped him. He's not running away from anybody. He went on a trip. And he left his estate behind. Nobody knows where he went. They tried emailing him and texting him. Nobody knows what happened to him. As one of my kids used to say when they were very young, he disappeared. 
In this case, we do not have the relative go down to his estate. But if the relative did go down to his estate to care for it, we also do not have to remove him. The courts do not have to bother with this. And to appoint a court-appointed guardian. Not for the land, not for the real estate, not for the real property, but the movable property. Why? Why? Because the court is not in charge of the property of people who go on trips and don't come back. Because he left knowingly, and he left his possessions behind. You know, it's normal for somebody to go on a trip. He appoints somebody to care for his possessions. What should be the rule as to how this estate should be treated? The court is not going to get very involved. If they're movable objects, let whoever has them now continue to hold them until the guy comes back and demands them, and then let them work it out. Or until he dies, and the heirs will come and demand it. But again, the courts can't be bothered to do everything. Courts have to be bothered when it comes to somebody kidnapped, running for his life, somebody leaves orphans, but a guy goes on a trip and never shows up. You know, work it out. What about real estate? This guy who went on a trip, he left a, I believe this means a tenant, or he left somebody living there. The court is not obligated to collect. The court is not obligated to collect rent. The soda or a field, they cannot vineyard. Shall you buy him? Or there was a sharecropper. You shall you let it continue to function as it did. I shall until the guy comes back and work it out. The soda they had him. What about a field or a vineyard? Shall you buy him? Which were left empty, fallow. You shall buy him. Let them be. Let them be. Continue to be left fallow. Why? Because nothing happened to him. He wasn't kidnapped. Shall you buy him? He even money. He willingly, knowledgeably lost his money. Made his money get lost. Why? Because he knows he's going on a trip. He should make arrangements. When somebody knowledgeably and willingly throws away his money. We, the courts, we, the people, are not obligated to restore it. We can't do everything. Again, the principle here, I believe, is that the courts are limited. You, the closing, paragraph of chapter 7. We hear a report that this person who left voluntarily, we heard that he died. In this case, the guy died. What can he do? He can't do very much when he's dead. Now the courts have to get involved. The courts remove, call the top, and all the movable objects. And place them with a trustworthy person. I'll pee him. By their supervision, and they bring down the relatives, the heirs, the soldiers to the fields, to the vineyards, to be like a sharecropper, until the rumor is substantiated that he died, because right now it's just a rumor, or until he comes back, and he says, guess what, I'm alive. End of chapter 7. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Nachalois, or Nacholois, inheritance, Perek Shemini, chapter 8. Chapter 8 comes out of chapter 7, which talks about the fact that when somebody disappears because he was kidnapped, or he's running away from someone who's pursuing him, like the law, like the king, and he doesn't have a very good chance of surviving, they take relatives and have the relatives take charge of his estate because they will be meticulously cautious in caring for his estate because sooner or later they believe it will be theirs. In this case, we do not do this for or by a minor. We don't do it to a child's estate and we don't bring a child relative into the person who disappears estate because children are children. They don't have the responsibility of an adult. When we bring a relative down into the possession, into the estate of one who was kidnapped, taken, cap- t- taken captive, or someone who's running from bad guys, or from the law, or even into the estate of someone who left on his own. And then they heard a rumor that he died, and they're waiting for that rumor to be substantiated. A relative is okay, but they should not bring down a child relative. Why? Because children are not responsible. Under the age of bar and bas mitzvah, children are children. We're concerned that the child will cause a loss to the estate. And then, what if this guy shows up, and he sees that his estate was destroyed? Similarly speaking, we don't bring a relative down into the estate of a minor. Perhaps the relative will say, hey, listen, this is my portion, my inheritance, and therefore he won't properly respect it. We don't even bring a relative of a relative who won't feel that sense of entitlement. We are cautious. What should we do? I believe, as we said earlier, and we're going to talk later, you bring in a guardian in this case. The courts bring in a guardian. And here he spells out a scenario. If there were two brothers, one is of majority age, one is a minor, and the child minor brother was kidnapped Baruch, or he ran away because someone was after him and so they can't bring the older brother down into his estate why? because the person who owns the estate is a child because if the child comes back he can't object the child has no voice 
Perhaps the big brother will take possession, ownership, entitlement. Many years will go by. One day the brother shows up. He'll say, hey, get out of here. Or as they say back in Newark, where I'm from. Get out of here. That's my portion. That's mine, as they said in Brooklyn. It is in my possession. I inherited it. Therefore, we <coughs> don't even begin with the relative. Even the nephew of this person, this minor who was kidnapped. What's the nephew? The nephew is the brother's son. So it's another step away. The brother is the heir. The brother's son is the heir of the heir. Even he should not be brought into the estate. But perhaps one day he'll say, This is really mine, and it's not yours, and because of my father, I inherited it. Could get very confusing. Therefore, we have to keep a distance. We never bring a relative down into the estate of a minor. Even a relative who is a maternal brother or connected to a maternal brother. Why would the maternal brother scenario be better? Because paternal brothers are related to inheritance. Maternal has no connection to inheritance, we said. It's a special Torah law. Therefore, if it's a maternal brother, he's never going to be able to claim inheritance. She's not fit for inheritance. He's still our sages made an extra decree to keep the distance, keep relatives away from the states of minors. Even if there is documented division. Between houses or fields, let, this, let the relative not go. Even if he said, listen, just because I'm a relative, I should not be punished. Let me go down as a sharecropper. Remember, we learned earlier that when relatives go into the estate of the person who disappeared, they go in as a sharecropper. He says, write a document for me which will spell out that my relationship is that of a sharecropper. Still, he should not go. Because documents are only as good as long as you have them. Maybe they'll get lost. And time will pass. Who knows how much time? Maybe a lot of time. He'll argue. Machmas may be sure that he is a relative, albeit a maternal brother or nephew, but still it's his because he inherited it. And here, the Rambam concludes with a beautiful story. Again, we said that this section of the Rambam, this book, has more stories in it than any of the other 14 books, and we are about to conclude book 13. We're in chapter 8. It concludes with chapter 11. Maisa, there was a story. The Isha Achaz, there was a woman. This woman had not one daughter, but three daughters. A mother and three daughters. The mother, the old woman, the mother was kidnapped. He, I guess she was a wealthy woman. He, she, and one of her three daughters were kidnapped. So you have the mother gone, and one of the daughters gone. You have two daughters left. There's no sons. So the daughters become the heirs if she dies. But right now, all we know is that she's kidnapped. She's gone. Well, Mesa, Bashnia, now there were two daughters left. The second daughter dies. So now you only have one daughter left, but the second daughter who died. She had a young son. Remember, when there are no sons, inheritance goes to the daughter. Or when the daughter dies, to the daughter's children. In this case, the daughter had a son. So now we have this woman who was kidnapped. She disappeared. One daughter was kidnapped with her. We don't know about her. A second daughter died, and there's a third daughter. Now imagine, if the kidnapped woman and her daughter die, what's left is the third daughter... And this young son of the second daughter, they share the estate. We don't bring this surviving daughter into the estate. Perhaps the old lady will have died. If the old lady dies, then a third of the old lady's estate belongs to this child. Remember, there were three daughters. This child's mother was one of the daughters and she died. So this child gets a third of the estate, assuming the old lady died. So a child has the estate. That's why we can't have the older, the, the, the surviving daughter come in, because the surviving daughter will be caring for an estate that partially belongs to a child. We just finished learning that under no circumstances should we bring a relative down to the estate of a child because the relative has too much entitlement. So that's one scenario in this story. We also don't bring the child in, that the child care for it. Why not? He's a prospective heir. It might be his. Because maybe the old lady is still alive. Another rule we established earlier is we don't bring a child into the estate of a captive person. So therefore, who can we bring in? We can't bring the surviving daughter. Because there's a child who may own a third of the estate. We can't bring the child because the old lady is a captive. She might still be alive, the grandmother of the child. So what do we do? We can't let it just... Get rot and disappear. What do we do? Because the court must appoint the court-appointed guardian anyway for the half that might belong to this child. Why half? Because we're assuming that this child and the surviving daughter are going to split it. This court-appointed guardian already is put in charge of the entire estate of the old lady. The plot thickens. The old lady died. The surviving daughter, she gets a third because she's clearly an heir. 
that's her portion of the inheritance. This little boy was the son of the surviving of the second daughter who died. He certainly gets a third. That's his portion of the inheritance of the old lady through his mother who died. Now, we still have a third. We're not sure if the kidnapped daughter, who originally was kidnapped together with the mother, we don't know if she's alive or not. So she might be alive. Who's going to care for her part? Here, we have to appoint a court-appointed guardian because of the portion of this child. What does the child have to do with it? He already got his third. Uh-huh. Perhaps the daughter who was kidnapped also died. In that case, who gets her estate? Her surviving sisters. Who are her surviving sisters? One is represented by this little boy. So he gets half. So again, it's an estate owned by a child. Again, only a guardian will do. End of chapter 8.